For three years, the disciples walked with Jesus. Uh, these are three very intense years of teaching and training with Jesus. Three years of eating meals with Jesus. Three years of following him by foot throughout the land of Israel as Jesus taught and performed miracles in various cities and different regions. Uh, these were the men, the disciples, who saw all of these things happen before their very eyes. They brought the bread to Jesus that he broke and multiplied and fed a multitude. You know, they were the ones who brought to him sick people whom he healed. They saw it all happen before their own very eyes, right? And, and certainly we, we get the sense that there was a bit of a sense of, of pride in a way that they had, that, uh, that they, of all people, were the disciples of the master teacher, this man who had become so famous, so well-known. They had got in on the front end of it. They had got in on it before everybody else jumped on the bandwagon, right? They were part of the inner circle, and there was a sense of pride to that, right? A little bit of a sense of elitism. In fact, uh, these guys, they knew that they had been picked by Jesus himself, they weren't looking for him. Jesus came looking for them. He came and he picked them and said, you, I want you to follow me. And uh, among the 12 men who were closest to Jesus, we even read that there was a sense of competition among some of them as to which of them was the greatest, which of them was the most committed, that when Jesus came into power, which of them would sit at his right and at his left. And perhaps the one disciple who, who stands out the most in all the stories of the gospel, in all four of them, in all the stories, is Peter. He was radical. And, and I love that about him, actually. We look at Peter and you see a man who was radical. He was passionate. He was a true Jesus freak. He wasn't happy with the status quo of just following Jesus. He didn't want to do the minimum. He wanted to go full bore, all out, hold nothing back. He wanted to follow Jesus with his whole heart. He was the guy who said, I am all in. I will go anywhere. I will do anything. I am going to go conquer the world for Jesus Christ. Peter was radical for Jesus like nobody else. He's the guy who, if you remember, when he saw Jesus walking on the water, he said, Lord, call out to me because I want to walk on the water with you. He asked if he could, and Jesus said, all right, then come on. And Peter stepped out of the boat, and he walked on the water. You know, we always give him a hard time for, for falling, but this is a guy who stepped out of a boat and walked on the water with Jesus. Amazing, radical. Nobody else does that, right? Peter's the guy who when Jesus comes to wash his feet at the Last Supper, he says, don't wash my feet, wash my whole body. And Jesus has to tell him to just tone it down a little, all right? He's like, all right, man, I get it. You're, you're into me and everything, but I need you to take it down a notch. Just calm down, all right? And not only that, but God revealed things to Peter, right? God spoke to him. Jesus showed things to Peter that not everybody else got to see, that he didn't show to everybody else, right? Peter got revelation from God. And Jesus told Peter that he would be instrumental, he would be foundational in the building of the church. Now, I personally, I relate to Peter, especially when I was a teenager, when I uh, first gave my life to Christ when I was 16 years old, I wanted to be radical like Peter. I wanted to go where nobody else was willing to go. I wanted to do the things that nobody else was willing to do. I wanted to be radical for Jesus, and I still, uh, I still want to be that, honestly. Um, and I believe that the world needs more people 
like Peter. I think the kingdom of God needs more people who are willing to be like Peter, who are passionate, right? People who are willing to give their lives for what they believe in. People who are willing to lay down their whole life on the altar and say, God, I'm completely yours. I'm wholly yours. Send me wherever you want. I will do anything. I will go anywhere. I'm yours. People who are willing to put their money where their mouth is and live radically and boldly for Jesus and actually live out the things that Jesus said. You know, I think that, of course, Peter was sometimes a little bit misguided. He was sometimes very impulsive, but I love his enthusiasm. And, and I put it this way, I would rather rein in a racehorse than have to kick a mule to get him moving, right? So I love Peter. But, but here's the thing, when Jesus told all his disciples what was going to happen to him, he, he told them, I am going to be arrested. And he said, when I am arrested, you're all going to scatter, they said they're going to strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. You guys are all going to run away. And, and, and none of you are going to stand by me when it comes down, when it gets heavy, right? Out of fear that they too would be killed, they would all run away. Jesus told them that was going to happen. And at that moment, Peter spoke up and he said, even if everyone else falls away because of you, I will never fall away. Matthew 26, this is what he says, he says, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. When the soldiers came to arrest Jesus, do you remember what happened? Peter was there and he was packing, right? He had a weapon with him, right? He brought a weapon. He brought a weapon with him because he is picking a fight, right? He brings a weapon with him because this is just right after Jesus had said, you will all fall away on account of me. And Peter said, no, I would rather die with you. So what does Peter do? He brings a sword to this, uh, to this fight right and he's going to prove that he's willing to die for Jesus he stands up to these Roman soldiers and and gets ready to attack he's going to take on a, a Roman group of soldiers by himself he's trying to go down in a blaze of glory until Jesus intervenes and doesn't allow him to do that now, now think about this. Do you ever wonder why Peter goes to this thing and pulls out this sword when these guys come to arrest Jesus? What was he thinking? Well, here's the key to understanding it. This happened right after Jesus told them that they were all going to run away. They were all going to fall away on, a, on account of him when things came down and got heavy. And Peter said, no way. I won't do it. Even if everybody else does, I won't. I would rather die with you than ever deny you. And so here's Peter trying to prove that that's true. Here's Peter trying to give his life for Jesus, trying to, to take on a small army by himself to prove that he is the most radical, most committed, most sold out follower of Jesus of all the disciples. But then maybe you know what happens after that. Jesus called Peter off. Jesus gets arrested. They take Jesus and put him on trial and they find him guilty. And they condemn him to death. And the disciples, they get worried because guess who's next? It's going to be them, right? So the disciples scatter, just like Jesus said they would. They run away. And Peter, after he runs away, whether it's from a sense of guilt or it's a sense of concern or maybe a mixture of both, Jesus goes and he stands out in the courtyard right outside the, the building where Jesus is being put on trial. And there's a fire there and a crowd has gathered to watch this thing that's going down in the middle of the night where, where this man, Jesus, very famous, well-known man, is arrested and being put on trial. 
And so Peter goes and stands in the courtyard. And, and again, there's this crowd. And as he's standing there, right before dawn, in the middle of the night, people come up to him and they start asking him. They start saying, hey, haven't we seen you before? In fact, one of the guys is a Roman soldier and he says, I did see you earlier tonight. You're the guy who pulled a weapon on us, right? And Peter, what does he say? He says, no, 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 you guys got the wrong guy. You, you think I'm somebody else. They say, no, you have, you have a redneck accent. You're from up north. We can pick that out. You are one of those Galileans. And Peter says, no, I am not a follower of that man, Jesus. I do not know the man. No way. I would never be one of those guys. I would never follow him. In Matthew 26, there at the end of the chapter, it says that Peter even took an oath. He denied under oath that he knew Jesus. And not only that, but he went on to invoke a curse upon himself. He said, if I'm lying, then I should be accursed, right? He invoked a curse upon himself. He swore up and down, I do not know the man Jesus. He denied Jesus three times under oath. And when the rooster crowed, Peter realized what he had done, and he was crushed, absolutely crushed. This man who had prided himself on being the most radical, the most sold out, committed disciple, the up and coming superstar who was going to be the head of the church, now here he is, and he has denied Jesus in a way that the others would never dare imagine. And Peter wept. Peter was crushed. Peter was ashamed. And here in the last chapter of the Gospel of John, which we read just a second ago, here we see Peter again. In the meantime, Jesus has died on the cross. He, he rose from the dead. It's incredible. Jesus rose from the dead. It's amazing. It is earth-shattering. It is game-changing. But look at this. What is Peter doing? Jesus is risen from the dead. And what's Peter doing? He's going fishing, right? Here's Peter, this man who wanted to conquer the world for Jesus. Now Jesus is risen from the dead. What's Peter doing? Is he out conquering the world for Jesus? Is he standing on the rooftops proclaiming that Jesus has conquered sin and death? He is risen? No. What's he doing? He's going fishing. Now doesn't that seem a little bit out of character? from the Peter that we've come to know? What's he doing? Why is he doing this? What's going on? Well, here's what's going on. Be before Peter was a disciple of Jesus, in his BC days, he was a fisherman. And now, Peter has gone back to his old life, right? Well, I guess I didn't cut it as a follower of Jesus. I guess I'll just go back to what I know, fishing. It's, that's all I've got left, right? And guess what? Here's the bummer of it. He's a failure at that too, right? It says in verse 3 of chapter 21 that Peter was out fishing all night, but he couldn't catch anything. So he's a failure as a Christian, and now he's a failure as a fisherman. What's next, you know? What could be worse? He's just a, a failure all around. Have you ever felt like Peter? Like you have like the opposite of the Midas touch, right? Everything you touch doesn't turn to gold. It just turns to dirt, right? It turns to ash. It dies whenever you get close to it. Have you ever faced failure, disillusionment in your life? Well, I want you to take a look at how Jesus relates to this man, Peter, 
in his moment of failure, how he faces up to Peter and how Peter has to face his failure. Now there are four beautiful aspects of Peter's encounter with Jesus. And each of these aspects is also important for you and I. If you want to have a life-changing, life-transforming encounter with Jesus, there are four aspects of Peter's encounter that you should take note of and, and put into practice in your life. Number one, the unity. Number two, the dash. Number three, the surgery. And number four, the intimacy. I'll explain what these mean. So number one, the unity. Now this story begins by telling us that Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, the sons of Zebedee, and, uh, and two other disciples who aren't named, but we later find out that one of them was John, the writer of the book. These five men were together. Well, so what, right? Okay, let's move on. I think that's easy to overlook. But here's what I want you to notice. It says they were together, period. Full stop. It doesn't say they were together and it doesn't say they were together so it doesn't say they were together because it just says it's just a statement in itself they were together period that's it they were together full stop now maybe that doesn't sound like a big deal at first glance it's easy to read over that and go on to the next thing but here I want you to see this it is a big deal and here's why their leader has been killed it, it is dangerous for them to be seen together but yet they cannot stay apart they want to be together they have to be together why because they have this thing this common bond this common experience with Jesus Christ that they don't share with anybody else these guys have walked with Jesus they know Jesus they share the same hope of the risen Savior and therefore, they have to be together. Even if it's dangerous, even if it's inconvenient, they have to spend time together because they share this common bond of knowing and walking with Jesus Christ that they share with nobody else. And, and as I read that, I, I find that convicting. I hope you do too, because, uh, because how many of us, right, how many of you have Christian friends or, or people from church and you're always saying, you know, we should really get together sometime. You know, we should, uh, we should get together. Hey, let's get together. We should really spend some time together. But you're never together, right? You never do it. And you've been saying this for months, maybe even years. We should really get together sometime. Yeah, you know what? Let's get together. But you're never actually together, right? But notice this. These guys were together. And it wasn't because it was easy or convenient for them just the opposite actually it was not easy it was it was in fact dangerous they were putting themselves at risk it wasn't convenient because look at what they do they go and sit in a boat for the entire night you don't need five or seven guys however you count that list to to sit in a boat overnight you'd be fine with just a few right so what happens is simon peter says i'm gonna go fishing and they say okay we'll go with you it, it wasn't that peter said gee, you know, I'm thinking that maybe I'd like to go fishing. And another guy says, oh my gosh, what a coincidence. I was just thinking that I would like to go fishing too. And the other guy's like, me too, me too. Oh my gosh, can you believe it? All five of us just happened to want to go fishing on the same day at the same time. Wow, it's a Christmas miracle. No, G Peter wanted to go fishing. The other guy said, all right, we'll go with you. Not because they want to go fishing, but because they want to be together. 
fellowship, you know, spending time with other believers, it was so important to these guys that they were willing to inconvenience themselves, that they were willing to sit on a boat in the middle of the water for the entire night, just so they could be together. And I think that's convicting because in our culture, I don't think we like to inconvenience ourselves, right? But fellowship is important and Christian community is important. And if it is important, then it's something that we must work for. It's something we must inconvenience ourselves for. It's something we must uh, sacrifice for. If you want to be together with other Christians, then sometimes you're going to have to do things that you wouldn't have chosen to do otherwise, right? Like sit on a boat all night long in the middle of the water. But in order to do something like that, in order to be willing to do that, to inconvenience yourself, to carve out time for that in your already busy schedule, you, you must first understand why it's important or else you're not going to have any motivation to do it. And here's why it's important. Look at these disciples. Each of them has walked with the same Lord. In fact, many times they were right next to each other, but yet they all had different experiences with him. Thomas had a different experience with Jesus than John had with Jesus and Mary Magdalene had with Jesus, right? And, and we see that as we've been looking at these different encounters that people had with Jesus, that Jesus dealt with people differently. With, he dealt with individual people differently. In the same way, each one of us has a different experience with the Lord. And that diversity of experiences is the very reason why being together is so important. Because you see him differently than I see him. Your experience of walking with him is different than my experience walking with him. And the truth is that I need what you have. And you need what I have. Because without those pieces, the picture isn't complete. C.S. Lewis, he wrote a book once called The Four Loves. And in this book, he talks about, uh, in one part, how he had these two friends, Ronald and Charles. And they used to meet together. You know, C.S. Lewis, Ronald, and Charles. They would meet and they would talk and they would hang out. And, uh, and then Charles died, right? There used to be three of them, but then Charles died. And this is what C.S. Lewis wrote about it. He said, now that Charles is gone, I haven't just lost Charles, but I've also lost a part of Ronald. Because in each of my friends, there is something which only another friend can fully bring out. By myself, I'm not large enough to call out the whole person. Now that Charles is dead, I will never again see Ronald's reaction to one of Charles's jokes. Far from having more of Ronald now that Charles is gone, I have less of Ronald. And then he goes on to say this. Thus friendship exhibits a glorious resemblance of heaven itself where the very multitude of the blessed increases the fruition which each has of God. And, and check this phrase out. For each soul, every soul, seeing him in her own way communicates that unique vision to all the rest. That is why the angels in Revelation are saying, holy, holy, holy to one another. The more that we share the heavenly bread between us, the more we all shall have. When Jesus dealt with the woman at the well, Remember, we looked at that story. In that story, we see one side of Jesus. When Jesus dealt with 
Nicodemus, we see another side of Jesus. When he deals with the woman caught in adultery, we see another aspect of who he is, another side of Jesus. When we see here how Jesus deals with Peter, yet again, another side, another, another aspect of Jesus. And you see, knowing other Christians brings us to know Jesus in a way we never could have otherwise. And so the experience of knowing Jesus leads us to community, and the experience of community leads us to know Jesus in a way that we never could have otherwise. You know, a few months ago, we took a few Sundays to focus on the DNA of Whitefields, what it is that, that are our core values, what makes us unique. And, and this is one thing that we talked about, community. And here's why it's so important. It's important for you because you need community in order to grow in your faith and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. If you don't have it, you will be lesser for it. You'll be poorer for it. And, and it's important because other people need what you have so that they can grow. So I would tell you this, whatever it takes, find those people who you're always saying, hey, we should really get together. And for goodness sake, just get together, right? Just do it. That community group that you've been thinking, hey, I should really get involved with that community group. Do it because you're not going to know all of the multidimensional beauty of your Savior unless you get to know other Christians and you spend time with them. So that's the first one, the unity. Next, I want you to see the dash, the dash. This is the second important aspect of, of Peter's encounter with Jesus. Notice what it says in verse 7 uh, from the second part. It says, when Simon Peter heard that it was Jesus, he put on his outer garment and he threw himself into the sea. Right? When, when Peter sees that, it, it, he realizes it's Jesus standing on the shore. He makes this mad dash to get to the shore, right? He dives, he swims, he runs so that he can get to Jesus. Now this is more like the Peter that we know and love, right? This is the wild man, the man who's full of passion, willing to do anything. This mad dash that Peter makes, right? It's, it's very significant, and let me tell you why. Because in Luke chapter five, there was another time when almost this exact same thing happened. Doesn't this story sound familiar? They're sitting in the boat, not catching anything. Jesus shows up on the shore, says, cast your nets on the other side. They do, they catch more fish than they can rein in. Right, it's, we've heard this story before. That's because the first time that Jesus called Peter to follow him and be his disciple was almost an identical situation in Luke chapter five, verse one through 11. If you got your Bible, feel free to turn there. I'll tell you what happens. Uh, the story, again, is almost identical. Peter and some other men, they're sitting in a boat. They've been out all night fishing, and they haven't caught anything. Jesus calls out to them from the shore, tells them, cast your nets on the other side of the boat. They do. They catch so many fish, they can't haul them in. In both stories, we have the same situation, the same intervention, and the same result. But here's the thing that's different. In Luke chapter 5, Peter's reaction is the complete opposite. In Luke chapter 5, Peter says to Jesus, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. In that story, Peter wanted to get away from Jesus. Why? He says because being around Jesus made him feel small. It made him feel weak. It made him aware of his shortcomings. Jesus, being around Jesus made him feel like a sinner, and he didn't like that. He wanted to get away from Jesus. That was his solution because Jesus made him feel small. 
But in John chapter 21, Peter's reaction couldn't be more different. He ties his cloak around his waist, he jumps in the water, he fights the water, he runs like a crazy man just so he can get to the side of Jesus as fast as he possibly can. What's different? In Luke chapter 5, Peter did not yet understand grace. That's what's different. Now after three years of walking with Jesus, of spending time with him, Peter understands the gospel. He understands grace. And because he understands the gospel, it causes him to run to Jesus' side. And that's interesting because if you look at the story in Luke 5, there's no particular concrete reason that you can pinpoint why Peter should feel uncomfortable around Jesus, why he should feel ashamed of himself or, or want to run and hide and get away from Jesus. Whereas here in John 21, Peter actually does have a reason to be ashamed, to hide from Jesus, but he doesn't. Many people in Peter's situation, right, having betrayed your friend and your leader, they would be so ashamed they wouldn't want to face that person. They would avoid that person. They wouldn't want to see him because of their shame. But Peter doesn't avoid Jesus. He dashes to Jesus. And the reason is because Peter, at this point, understands the gospel. He understands that with Jesus there's grace and forgiveness. He understands that, that Jesus doesn't, didn't come to be a good example. Jesus came to be a savior. Jesus didn't come to be a lawgiver. He came to be a mediator and a substitute for you. And when you understand that, you don't hide from Jesus because you sinned. Rather, you run to Jesus with your sin. Now, isn't it interesting that, that Peter would want to get away from Jesus the first time? Why is that? I, I believe it's because Peter thought that he was a pretty great person. In fact, and I say that because we read that about him, that this is an issue that he struggled with. It was a, a thing that was hard for him that he struggled with this sense of pride, right? We see that in his arguments with the other disciples. And when Peter meets Jesus, Jesus makes him feel small and weak and Peter doesn't like that and he wants to run away. You know, sometimes you see that, that think about this. How do you react to your sin? Does it cause you to run away from God? Do you run away from him? Do you run away from church? You see that sometimes, right? People mess up. Hey, why haven't you been around? Well, I just blown it. So I don't want to show my face around there. I don't want to show up there because uh, my life's a mess and I've, I've screwed up bad, right? And so what do they do? They push away community they run away from church they run away from God that's what Peter did the first time he saw Jesus you make me feel uncomfortable why because Peter thought he was a pretty great guy but then he met Jesus and Jesus made him feel small I heard one person put it this way he said uh, if you were impersonating a police officer that would be a lot of fun it'd be a lot of fun people would let you do whatever you want you could go anywhere you could pretty much do anything but when you're impersonating a police officer, you're not afraid of anybody except for one person, a real police officer. Because a real police officer can see through your Walmart police officer costume. They can recognize that you're not the real deal that you think you are, right? That you're trying to project to everybody. And essentially that's the case when somebody really thinks, I'm a good person, they build their identity on that. The one person they don't wanna meet is a truly good person, which is Jesus Christ. They, don't, they're, they, they, are, they find God threatening. Why? Because he exposes them, that they're really not as good as they seem to project that they are. And, and I believe that's what happened here with Peter. 
But here's the thing, when you understand the gospel, that the determining factor in your relationship with God is not your past, but Christ's past, not what you've done, but what he has done for you and accomplished for you on the cross, then you do not run away from God, but you run to God with your sin. You run to his side, especially when you failed. And that's what Peter does. He dashes to Jesus' side. And that is an important aspect of his encounter with Jesus. Running to him rather than running from him when you've messed up and failed. That is vital. That is important for you to understand if you want to have a, a transforming encounter with Jesus. Let's move on to the third point. The fourth one's really short, just so you know. The third point is the surgery. The surgery. Once Peter and the other disciples get to shore, Jesus begins to do surgery on Peter. And I, I call it surgery because it's painful. In fact, it's even painful to watch it go down, right? They're having this conversation and you can feel, this is a, it feels a bit awkward, it's painful, right? It, Jesus isn't trying to hurt him, he's not beating him up. What he's doing is he's dealing with the issue in Peter's heart with surgical precision in order to bring healing and restoration to remove the tumor so that things can heal. So look closely at what's happening here. Do you remember where Peter denied Jesus? It was at a fire. So where does Jesus bring Peter? To a fire, right? How many times did Peter deny Jesus? He denied him three times so Jesus asks Peter and even kind of gives him the opportunity to redeem himself three times Peter do you love me and this conversation is interesting because in English we don't get the full picture of the dynamic of the conversation because in English we only have one word for love right uh, but in Greek you have multiple words for different kinds of loves and that's helpful because uh, most of you probably love Taco Bell in a different way than you love your spouse, right? And, uh, and so as you may know, the, the word in Greek for the highest and purest, supreme, excellent, you know, perfect love is the word agape. Whereas the most common word for love, right, love in the general sense that we tend to use it in English, is the word phileo, right? This is love that you have for your family members, even for your spouse, for your kids. It's, it is an intense love. It, is, it shouldn't be downplayed. But, uh, but agape really is the purest, truest, most undefiled form of love. So Peter asked Jesus, or I'm sorry, Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? And he used this word agape when he asks. He says first, do you love me more than these? Do you love me with agape love, with pure love, more than these guys do? And Peter responds, I love you with phileo love. Basically saying, I just simply love you, right? There's this reluctance on Peter's part. He doesn't want to go there where Jesus is trying to take him. He doesn't want to use this word agape. So Jesus asks him a second time, and this time he takes it down a level. Each time he does this, right? First time, do you love me with agape love more than these guys do? And Peter says, I just love you. The next time he says, do you love me with agape love? And Peter says, again, I just love you with phileo love, right? The third time, Jesus changes his word and he brings it down again. And he says, okay, Peter, do you just love me with phileo love? And this time, Peter is hurt that Jesus would even ask this. And he says, yes, I love you with phileo love. 
Now what's this all about? What's going on here? Peter had been so proud before all of this happened. Yes, Peter was sold out for Jesus. He was radical for Jesus, and that's great, but here's the problem. At the same time, his heart was full of pride. And see, what's going on here in this conversation between Peter and Jesus is that Peter had claimed before, he had claimed that he had an ultimate, pure, perfect love for God, and then he fell. He failed. He messed up. And it was an incredibly humbling experience. And what Jesus is doing here is he's dealing with Peter's pride. He's doing surgery. Peter had been, again, full of pride. He had claimed, I love Jesus more than anybody else does, right? Even if all betray you, I will never betray you. So Jesus asks him, do you love me more than anybody with perfect love? And Peter, he refuses to use that word agape. He says, you know, essentially, I do not want to make any more great boastful claims about how much I love you. I'm not going to make the claim anymore that I love you with the perfect ultimate love or that I love you more than anybody else does. I will just simply say that I love you. And finally, Jesus uses Peter's word and asks him, do you love me with that kind of love? And Peter says, I do. And Jesus says, okay, that's what I want. I want you to love me. I don't want you to make big claims about how much you love me. I don't want you to claim that you love me more than anybody else does. I just want you to love me. That's all. You see, the the great irony of Peter's story, Peter's failure, is that Peter thought that he was going to be the greatest leader of the Christian church because he would perform better than anybody else but yet he performed the worst. That's the irony of his failure. But in a way, Peter's failure was the best thing that could have happened to him because it humbled him. It humbled him. It broke his pride and and it allowed Jesus to do surgery on him so that he could be made whole. You know, maybe for some of you, there's there's some area in your life in which you have failed. Maybe like Peter did, you, you feel disappointed with yourself. You feel defeated. Maybe you even feel ashamed. I want you to see how Jesus dealt with Peter. The first thing Jesus did is he made him take responsibility, right? No blame shifting. Peter had to own his actions. He had to own his actions in order to repent. But once repentance had happened, Jesus was quick to step in and begin to restore him. He didn't cast him off forever because he failed. But he used that failure as an opportunity to do surgery on him, to get rid of something in Peter's life that wasn't healthy, that didn't belong there. And the message of the gospel is that no matter what you've done to mess up your life, no matter what you've done to mess up other people's lives, you can have a fresh start before God. You can be forgiven, you can be restored, and you can even be recommissioned. You don't just have to come back in as a grunt. You can come back in as a general is what happened to Peter. But, once you, once you, uh, but you have to let God do surgery on you. You have to. You have to allow him to use your failure as an opportunity to do surgery on your heart and remove those things that don't belong, which aren't healthy. And if you let him do that, even though it hurts in the moment, These tumors of pride or, or bitterness or vanity or whatever it is for you, he'll remove those from you and it'll hurt in the moment, but you will be better off for it in the end, just like Peter was. And the final element, I said it'd be short, it will be, is intimacy. In the last verse of this section, verse 19, Jesus tells Peter, 
follow me. Well, where are they going? Well, we read in the next verse, verse 20. They're simply going for a walk. There's no destination. They're just going for a walk together, right? They're just going so they can spend some time alone. Intimacy, it's a key element of Peter's encounter with Jesus. Once Peter has been restored, Jesus calls him to simply follow him and spend time with him. And I've been telling you each week that each of the the Sundays of Advent and each of the candles represents those Sundays, they have a theme and they have a name. You know, it's a tradition, it's historical. The first uh, week is, the, the theme of the first week of Advent is hope. The theme of the second week is preparation. That's what we talked about last week. And this third week's theme is joy. Now, the joy of the gospel. Now, what does Peter's restoration have to do with joy? Everything. It has everything to do with joy. And here's why. Because the joy of the gospel is that God brings life out of death. And God brings victory out of defeat. That is what Advent is all about. It's the essence of who Jesus is. It's the essence of why Jesus came to a world that was fallen, a world under a curse of sin and death. He came to bring life out of death and victory out of defeat. In his own life, Jesus died in our place and he resurrected. Life out of death, victory out of defeat. And here in Peter's life, we get an example of how God wants to do that, not just on a big scale, but he wants to do it in your life, individually and personally. He wants to bring victory out of defeat. He wants to bring life where there has been death. And if you want to experience that joy of the gospel, that joy of victory out of defeat and life out of death, then here's what I want you to do. Number one, be in community with other believers. Number two, run to Jesus rather than running from Jesus when you fail. Number three, let him do surgery on you. And number four, respond and answer that call to intimacy. And you will experience the joy of the gospel, not just now at Christmas time, but each and every day, in every season of life, in every season of the year. God took Moses, a stammerer and a stutterer, and he made him into a great prophet. God took Thomas, a doubter, and he made him one of the greatest confessors of the faith. And God took Peter, a failure, and he restored him, and he made him into a rock and a pillar. Who knows what he can do with you, amen? Who knows what he can do with you? Let's stand and pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you For your kindness, we thank you for your gentleness. We thank you also for your firmness, Lord. Lord, may we be people who know you in community. Lord, may we be people who run to you rather than run from you in our failure. And Lord, we ask that uh, we would experience intimacy with you. May we be people who allow you to do surgery on us. Lord, if there's anyone here today who says, you know what, there is an area of my life that I need surgery on. I have something in there that's not good, it's not right. Lord, remove it from me, even if it hurts. Lord, I pray that you would do that work this morning. And I pray as we sing this last song, as we spend time in fellowship together, Lord, may we encounter Jesus. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen.